Thanks, Mike. If you would turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. If you're a first time guest with us here today, so thankful that you're here. There is a Bible in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. There's nothing greater that we could give to our guests than a copy of God's Word. So if you would join us in 1 John chapter 3. Friends, today it's a joy to be with you on this last Sunday before we celebrate the Christmas holiday. What a kindness it is to come together before Christmas and to contemplate the gift that we have in Christ. And this week is one of those weeks that's filled with anticipation, with anticipation of friends and family arriving. Maybe. I don't know your family, but never mind. That's a different story. Uh, The anticipation of the celebration that's going to take place, of the, the presence, of maybe just a time to rest. And all of this just helps us to mirror and remember the anticipation we should have for the coming of Christ again. We think about those who were anticipating the first coming of Christ. We share in that anticipation in just a slightly different way. Beloved, I rise this morning to tell you with all confidence that there is nothing in earthly terms that we could possibly long for or anticipate this week that we have not been told we have received in Christ in chapter 3 of 1 John. Uh, There is such an immense weight of the gifting of God to His children in this one chapter. And I know there are weighty parts of this chapter. There are the exhortations to love and to live righteous lives. And those exhortations turn out to be tests of our faith. And so they're red hot and some of them are difficult. But beloved, the greatest thing about chapter 3, we shouldn't shy away from the exhortation and the tests, but we have here a listing of the giftings that we have. See what kind of love John begins that the Father has lavished upon us that we, that you and I in the year 2021 in the midst of all that we have experienced in the past couple of years that we should be called children of God and so we are. Is there anything you're going to unwrap a week from now that is going to rival that reality? Not even close. He goes on to say that we don't have a full understanding of the beatific vision. That we have not seen what we will be when we stand before Christ. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we do know this. When we see Him, we will be like Him. There's another gift that we have. We who are called children of God, who are children of God now, will one day be glorified. We will be like Him. What an unimaginable gift That is. We know this about His first coming. It was not to give us a system of teaching, a moral compass, a political viewpoint. His first appearing was so that our sins would be taken away. Verse 5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And we have the wonderful gift of the atonement in this passage. But we also see the reason of the Son of God appeared in His incarnation was to destroy the works of the devil in verse 8. And we learned that that 
is that we are set free from the power of Satan's lie over creation. Friends, we were sold to our sinful flesh under the fall in Adam, and Jesus appeared that we would be set free. Not only from the penalty of our sin, but also from the power of the lies of Satan. And so it's in light of all of this that John comes with the exhortation and the test that we are to love one another in the body of Christ and seek to live righteous lives. The greatest gift in, in the earth today is ultimately found in one place. The greatest gift that you and I could ever have this side of heaven is found not under the Christmas tree, not in Washington, D.C., but in this room this morning. We have the body of Christ. We are called to love one another and to walk with one another and to bear one another's burdens. And there is no greater joy that we should have than that we have that as our inheritance. That we have freedom from the condemnation of the Lord and freedom from the lies of Satan. That we can come in here and realize the majesty of what God has done in bringing each one of us into the body of Christ. None of us came in because of our noble birth or because we were righteous in and of ourselves or because we were so erudite in our thinking. We came because God acted. Because God came after us. Because God went after those sheep that had gone astray. So with that in mind, if you would stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word, as we focus on verse 24, but begin to read in, chapter, in verse 19 of chapter 3 this morning, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Verse 24, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God. And God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us. By the Spirit whom He has given us. This is God's Word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning thankful for Your Word. Thankful for Your church. Thankful for Your working. Thankful for Your acting in redemptive history and in our own lives subjectively. And we ask that You would emblazon into our hearts the meaning of verse 24. For Your honor and glory. In Christ's name, Amen may be seated. Well, we come to this closing verse of chapter 3, and there's this startling reality about this verse, that this in this passage, in this context, is the first unambiguous mention of the third person of the, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, John had mentioned before, implicitly in chapter 2, the Spirit in verse 27, but as this anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. We must remember that the thrust, though, of this his third chapter is our sonship, that we are children of God. 
At this very hour, so we are. We are God's children now. But here in verse 24, we are given a a further proof of our sonship, of the reality that we are children of God. There is this evidence that we can have that we know, in fact, that this declaration is true, that we are one of the individuals who God has called according to his purpose. And this is the test, that we have received the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. We also have to remember that John is writing that we might have joy and fellowship with God. The overriding theme of this letter is that we would have joy at Christmas time, not because we get a new Bentley. Although, Sarah, if you can work that out. Uh, not because uh, of the season, not because, of, because we, we pause and we reflect on the fellowship that we have with the triune God. And that that was made possible only by the work of God, only because God had acted. We have to remember that this particular letter written in the first century by John was written when suffering and persecution were the normal part of Christian life. We, we know that we are of God, John says, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This was a dark hour, and beloved, I believe it's a dark hour now. We are insulated by so many of our political freedoms, but those things seem to be shattering. Do you know what won't fall? The fact that we are sons, that we are children of God now. John's encouragement to us is in the face of so much suffering and he seeks to comfort, to encourage A life of the church to encourage individual believers. He seeks to encourage us even yet this morning. The reality is comfort in the Christian life doesn't come from warm thoughts, well wishes, or hallmark. Comfort in the Christian life, according to John, comes by clear theological understanding of who Christ is and what He has done. By having a clear understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what He has done, and how we are to live in fellowship with Him. John writes, for our joy, knowing that we can have this abiding relationship. He writes of our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands and intercedes at this very moment. He writes of our being children of God. And all of these things he says in chapter 3, bluntly, should come out in our living. If we have an advocate, if we have fellowship with God, if we have really been made new by the anointing of the Spirit that he speaks of in chapter 2, then it should be evidenced in our lives. God doesn't leave us without the comfort of the Spirit of Christ. For John, to put it succinctly, talk is cheap. It's not just about the words, it's not just about the ideas that we have, but all of what we understand theologically should come out in the way that we should live. We should live out what we profess as Christian. We should walk in the truth that we say we believe. There's a way that we evidence that we have been made in Christ and 
John gives these evidences throughout chapter 3. First, he comes in verse 7 and says that we will, if we are in Christ, keep His commandments. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. And then in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Very bold statement there. But what he's saying is, if you claim to believe the gospel, if you claim to be a Christian, you will actually have affection for the church of the living God. The idea in modern Christianity that we can have Jesus and forget the church altogether is dashed upon verse 14. doesn't work. So these first two evidences that we will keep His commandments, that we will love His church, then He comes in this final verse and gives this last evidence that we will be individuals who have received the Holy Spirit. By this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. John puts us face to face with a great doctrinal reality here. We are called children of God. We have been made so by the Spirit that He has given us. In this one verse are mingled two great realities that I want you to see this morning. One is subjective and one is the the objective. The objective is what God has done. What He alone could accomplish, that we would be called children of God. And the subjective is what we truly experience personally in our walk, in our lives. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. There is a subjective experience for the Christian, but it starts not with the subjective experience, but with the objective reality of what God has done. We then must... First, consider the gift of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And, and I want to I bring us into the biblical narrative. Um, when I was a kid, uh, every hillbilly in Missouri, there's one great joy during, when it freezes outside. That is all of the lakes and the streams and all of the bodies of water freeze over and you can go slide across them. Generally speaking, you find out really early, if you're not severely warned by your parents, that there's a right way to go across the ice and there's a wrong way. The wrong way is to put all of your weight in one spot. You're going to be wet and cold. You're going to go through. The better way is to spread out and slide with letting your weight be dispersed across the ice. And beloved, can I tell you this morning... That as we come to the topic of the Holy Spirit, so many theologians and so many individuals will come to individual points of Scripture, individual passages, and they will be like the foolish friends that I had growing up who will just stand on that one place and build an entire theology of who the Spirit is, neglecting the rest of the Scriptures, and they wind up falling through. The better way is if we spread out and we look not just in this passage, but in other areas uh, of Scripture to have a a clearer vision of what it is, this gifting of the Spirit. We we need to be reminded then of this reality if we're going to spread out, of the reality of Acts chapter 2, of what the 
the day that so many have labeled Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Again, that gift of the church, these individuals who had been called together. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's one thing that I want you to see and I'll tell you this. Acts chapter 2 is not without its controversies. But if we look to God as we interpret the text, we often will miss the controversy because we will behold the glory of what God has done. See, what we need to be reminded of, of Acts chapter 2, is this. And we far too often forget this reality in our theological arguments. It is this fact that Acts chapter 2 is a historical reality. It is an event. It is something that we in the body of Christ live downstream from. And here in this event, the people of God, the church, is being transformed. They begin to speak in other languages, in other tongues. In verses 7-8, through 8, it's made plain. And they were amazed and astonished. This is individuals looking on. Are not all of these men speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? This miraculous gifting to the church that as they came from all different areas of the region, as as individuals had traveled in, and on this day of Pentecost, where the curse of the, the, the Tower of Babel would have divided them, and the works of God would have been obscured, here in this place, as they speak of the wonderful acts of God, those acts are made plain. That's a historical reality of what God has done for His people in this particular narrative. It's a historical fact. These people began to supernaturally declare all that God had done. Now the church is divided again at many points in the interpretation of the text. But my point this morning isn't to answer all of the questions. My point this morning in holding this text before you is not to engage in the controversy, but to point to the clear and plain objective truth to which John is writing about in verse 24 of chapter 3 of his first letter. And that objective reality is this. And we can all agree on this. And it's not a slight trifling agreement. The Spirit of the living God has been given to the church. That the church has no power, that the church has no message, that the church has no corporate reality without the giving of the gift of the Spirit. So many people want to argue about the subjective experience of the people in this passage and its distribution of gifts to the individual there. But you know, it seems to me, if we take this particular passage in light of all of Scripture and we listen to our brother Paul who says, look, don't make the gathering of the saints about your individual gift, uh, giftings, but make it about the edification of the body for the glory of God, then when we come to chapter 2, we're not going to mess up the interpretation because the subjective experience of the individuals isn't the point. The the outworking of the objective reality is the point. Amen. Now we can have a good disagreement about those subjective experiences. And, and friends, we're going to have to go through that in the body of Christ. 
We're going to disagree in points because we don't all have the same subjective experience in total. And, and that's okay. I, I find these arguments, and I'm not going to go into them, but about the giftings here, sometimes to divide us needlessly. Paul exhorted here, uh, or sorry, the, the, the thing that we can say about Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost, again, is that it is an objective reality. That God gave the Holy Spirit on that day. And that there is this reality that we need to hold near and dear to our hearts. And it is this, that we are not saved because our theological... Now friends, here's the, you've heard me say time and time and time again, and you'll hear me say it again. Our theology matters. What we believe about the Word of God matters. But one of the theological realities that we believe is this, that we are not saved by believing truth. We are saved by the wonderful works of God that God has done alone. Isn't that a joy? And, and it sets you free to do theology right. If your life, if your, if your eternity is dependent upon you being perfect, you know what you're going to become in your theological expression? An arrogant cuss, as my grandmother would say. But when you are free knowing that it is because of grace alone that you have been brought into the kingdom and you've been given the Spirit of God, then you are free to work diligently knowing the Father loves you not because you have everything right, but because He had the right plan from the foundation of the world for His own glory. You see, what we need to do is come to this narrative of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and see it as the last step of a series of wonderful works that God had done, that He had bestowed upon His people. We need to consider Acts chapter 2. And a lot of people, when they come to 1 John chapter 3 verse 24, they will point back to Acts chapter 2. And then you get a lot of different variations of how to interpret 1 John chapter 3 verse 24 out of that interpretation of Acts chapter 2. Well, the first thing that we have to do if we're going to understand Acts chapter 2 well is to put it in its proper context. So we must start in Genesis. And some of you go, oh my word, we started in verse 24 of a letter that was really close to Revelation and now we're all the way back in Genesis. But that's the right way to understand the Word of God. God created man upright. He, 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 he created him to glorify and to worship and to have fellowship with God. He, God created man to have what John is writing about in 1 John. To have joy and fellowship with God. Isn't it amazing that that's the reality of creation and God said that it was good, but what did we do? We sought out our own scheme. Adam sinned and the entire world was plunged into perdition and now it lies in the power of the evil one. That is what Genesis teaches us. Sin entered the world. And so what did God do in light of our sin? What did God do in light of the fall? He acted. He didn't set back. He didn't go, I'm waiting for them to get their act right. I'm waiting for them to decide. I'm waiting for them to come up with the right answer. That's not what happened. Our redemption is not based upon us. Our redemption is based upon this reality. God acted. So he made a promise. And friends, here's the reality that I know. My buddy Brian down here on the front row. When Brian promises me something, Brian's an honorable man, he's a good guy, but when Brian makes a promise, there's a whole lot of things that could happen between the giving of the promise and the actual completion of that promise. 
Brian's bank account could go empty. Brian could, a number of things. But can I tell you this? When our God gives a promise, it's the same thing as an action. It's going to come to pass. He's going to do what he says he will do. He doesn't act in possibilities. He acts in the concrete, definite plan of redemption. And what a joy that is this morning. So he made a promise. With with God, a promise is an act. And if you walk all throughout the pages of Scripture, you will see God at work completing, responding to, acting out that promise. God builds a people for his own possession, uh, possession, Israel. And Israel exists for one reason. God acted. And he built up the church. And this is one of the arguments in Acts chapter 2. When did that occur? Well, I can tell you this with all certainty. The church exists on the face of the planet today for one reason. God acted. Israel was loosed from the bondage of of Egypt rather, for one reason. If we walk throughout the Old Testament. God acted. He set his people free. They made it past the Red Sea as Moses parted the waters because of one reason. God acted. And all of this acting throughout the Old Testament is leading somewhere. And that somewhere turns out to be a someone. And that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we take Acts chapter 2 in light of Luke chapter 2, we we realize this wonderful narrative of redemption that is continuing to work out as The one that would sit on the throne of David has come forth. The Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see something wonderful in Luke chapter 2 in light of Acts chapter 2. Starting verse 10. Fear not, the angels said. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why? How did that happen? God had acted. And we learn in John chapter 3, He came, He acted in coming into the flesh to atone for our sin and to dispel the lies of Satan. Again, the only reason why our sins are forgiven and why we are not sold out to the lies of Satan is because God has acted. Further in Luke chapter 2, we find this reality that our Savior, God having acted in sending His Son into the world, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. The narrative is continuing. God is still acting at this point. God is growing the same way that you and I do. And then we come to the crucifixion. We come to that point where He actually removes our sin, where He pays for, atones for our sin. The reason for which He came, where He puts away the lies of Satan. And we have forgiveness this morning, beloved, for one reason. God has acted. And there Jesus suffering on the cross for your sin and for my sin and bearing the wrath of God that we deserve. He he dies bodily he's taken down off of the cross and his disciples who who understood the old testament but not completely and who had walked with jesus and had seen him suffering and he had told them that this was going to happen and yet they find themselves without hope in the world because their savior has been crucified he has died 
But then on that third day, the tomb was opened. The stone was rolled away. And Christ, this very day, we can say with all of assurance, is risen indeed. Why? Because God acted. And then Jesus, in the midst of His disciples, actually ascended and is now seated, this moment enthroned at the right hand of God Almighty. And we this morning, as the church, drawn together by the power of the Spirit of God, have hope again. And we have this hope. Not only is Jesus alive, but He is the ruling and reigning Savior of all of creation. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but the evil one lies in the power of our God. He is sovereign. And how is it that we can come this morning and have all uh, confidence that Christ has ascended and that He is ruling and He is reigning? Is it because of something you have done? Is it because of some decision you made? Is it because of some theological discussion you have had? Or is it because of this one reality this morning? God has acted. Here in chapter 2 of Acts, we find then a reality of something God had done just as much as we find a reality of God had done something in Luke chapter 2 in the Incarnation. We find the reality that God had sent His Spirit upon the church that God had acted. It was the last step of a series of acts of bringing His church into fruition into being this act is a final proof that Jesus is who he says he is that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords Jesus really is the son of God and he really does do what Paul wrote of in Ephesians he gives gifts to men he is our valiant one he is our victor he is the one who has paid the way for our sin and who has secured the blessing of the Spirit. So above all of the noise of what subjectively was experienced of the first Christians in Acts chapter 2 is the objective message that they proclaim. Here is the, the test for if someone says, I am full of the Holy Spirit and I have something that I just need to tell the church. There's a whole generation of people like that. And they have these grand narratives of how the Spirit has spoken to them and all of these subjective things that can't be connected to the Word of God. But I I tell you this, objective reality in Acts chapter 2 is that Peter being filled with the Spirit of Almighty God, he had a message. And so if we're going to have a test of someone's subjective experience, we should bring it back to this. What are they preaching? And does it accord with what Peter taught? Here is Peter's message in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Boy, isn't that a great set of words? Definite plan. Not a potential plan, not a hopeful plan. It was the definite plan. And foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not hold our Savior back. 
For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell secure. For you will not abandon my, sh- my soul to Hades or let the, your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life and you will Make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set out one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God Raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, both King and Savior, that Jesus, this Jesus, whom you crucified. This was the message of Peter. God has acted. And he acted in the incarnation and the crucifixion. And his most fine point in Acts chapter 2, Peter's, is that he has acted in the resurrection confirming who Jesus is. His resurrection reassures us then that God has accepted him at his sacrifice on our behalf. As we see the reality that Christ has been raised from the grave, we can be confident that what John writes in chapter 3 of Jesus coming to take away our sins is an actual reality and that God has put His seal of approval on the redemptive work of Christ. The giving of the Spirit, of the Spirit though, is no less of an evidence. The Father raised His Son and seated Him at His right hand and gave the gift to lavish upon his, his bride the gift of the Spirit. And that Spirit always leads us to declare one overwhelming truth that our salvation is possible for only one reason. And that is that God has acted. The giving of the Spirit is the final proof, the seal of our salvation. And praise God this morning we have that gift. Praise God that we have been given a spirit inwardly that bears witness with our spirit that we are in fact called children of God. You see, beloved, we live on all of the other side of these wonderful acts, these wonderful deeds of God. And sometimes as we look through the pages of Scripture, we will lament and we'll think, It would have been so cool if we would have seen all of these things happen. What would it have been like if we would have come into the manger and seen the the Christ laying there? What would it have been like to be there as Jesus was transfigured? What would it have been like to have been there before the cross as He died and He bled and He suffered, atoning for our sins? What would it have been like that first Easter morning to go and to see that the stone was rolled away and that Jesus had really risen? What would it have been like to be with doubting Thomas as He touched Christ? Sometimes we can think, man, there's 
We've been so short, we've been sold short. But that's not what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 16. He says, I do not say these things to you from the I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus, as he's departing, as the acts of God are coming to a close and he's facing his crucifixion, he tells the church, the greatest gift that I will give you is that I will send my spirit to be with you in genuine presence. That is the greater gift. That is the overwhelming blessing that the church has at this very moment. Beloved, we have a great inheritance. We know that God has acted. But we also know because His Spirit resides in us that God is acting even yet. We have this further word from Acts chapter 2 starting in verse 14. But Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall see dreams. Shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and the the signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and that great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He points to the reality that God is going to send the Spirit, and so on the day of Pentecost He has. God has acted. He has acted objectively. This is the great reality that we have. And Peter is saying that the people are not drunk with wine. And this coincides with what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. And don't be drunk with wine but, uh, because this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be regulated by the Spirit. Don't be given to the things of this world. Don't, don't be given to this life, but rather be regulated by the Spirit. And that is a message for all Christians, not just a select few. You see, there's a subjective evidence for those Christians, for these Christians and also for us. And so we have to ask this question in line of the objective reality that God has acted, and that is this question, what is a Christian? Is a Christian just merely a moral person, a good person, a member of a church, someone who attends religious gatherings? The Bible says no to all of those. A Christian is a person who has received the Spirit of Almighty God. Now some argue that out. And they say, well, first you become a Christian and then later you get the Spirit. That is absolute hogwash in the context of the Bible. To be a Christian means to be born of the Spirit of Almighty God. There's no text that teaches that 
some Christians have the Spirit and some don't. We all have been given the reality, the joy of the divine nature in obtaining the Spirit of God. Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature of the Spirit of God having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Jesus told us in John chapter 14 I will not leave you as orphans. I won't leave you without comfort. I will come to you. I will send my Spirit. To be a Christian is to be an individual indwelt by the Spirit of God. And Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and said to, the, to, to be a Christian is to live in light of what Joel spoke of. A pouring out of the Spirit of God. And here we come to the fine point of verse 24. And we hear John exclaim with all of those witnesses, Paul and Peter and the apostles, and by this we know that He abides in us. By the Spirit whom He has given us. The Spirit can't be a unique gift for some Christians and not all Christians if John is right in verse 24. So how do we know then if we have the Spirit? Well, I want to close with giving you three brief evidences or reasons that we can know that we have the Spirit residing in us. And then I want to give you a biblical example. One... We know that we have the Spirit of God as we are aware of a power that is at work in us. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that it is God who is at work in us as we work out our own salvation and fear and trembling. As we look to what God commands us to love the body of Christ and to serve our neighbor and to love our neighbor and all of the commands and the imperatives of Scripture. If we are going to live them out as the Bible, as Jesus commands us to live them out, we have to come to this this increasing awareness that we don't have the power to do that. And there must be this other, this other force at work within us. This power doesn't always come in comforting feelings and thoughts. And that's so much of what is propagated on the church subjectively is that if the Holy Spirit indwells you, it's this, it's this feeling of of, of just joy and, and it's always great. But I can tell you this, one of the evidences that the Spirit resides in you is that as you begin to sin and to go astray from what God has commanded you, the Spirit doesn't play games. He, he pushes back. He disrupts your plans. He, he, he presses in upon you. So we are aware that, that God is at work, that God has acted, and that that action that his work his person is at work within us conforming us into the image of Christ secondly if we have the spirit of God our appetite for spiritual things change we're no longer bored by the Bible we're no longer looking to the church just to fix all of our earthly problems we're no longer interested in a faith that doesn't get off the ground but rather we want to know that our sins really have been forgiven. And here's one of the, the realities of being indwelt by the Spirit of God. We're no longer interested in the lies of Satan through the modern religions of men. We're interested in the truth. That's why our Savior came. 
fact, Paul wrote in that same direction in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those who are filled with the Spirit are not satisfied with the feel-good sermons or thoughts of men, but they want to see Christ in all of His glory. So not only if we're indwelt by the Spirit do we begin to realize that there is this power at work uh, in us. Uh, I think I've shared this narrative with you. It just came to mind of um, Charles Spurgeon. And I think it was Livingston. Uh, Spurgeon was absolutely uh, tireless in his effort for the Lord. I mean, his his, uh, sermons fill volumes. I think it's 60-some volumes uh, of sermons. His library is at Midwestern Theological Seminary, and you just walk in, and the brother was well-read, reading up to six or seven volumes uh, a week of theology. And Livingston asked him, Brother, how is it that you don't just burn out in the ministry? How is it that you go on preaching night after night and week after week, Sunday after Sunday? And Spurgeon's response was, My dear brother, you've forgotten there are two of us. That's a reality for those of us who are in the body of Christ. We know there is this spirit, this power at work in our lives, and really this person. Our appetites for spiritual things begin to change. We no longer are happy with the hallmark, happy Christmas. Uh, We want to know Jesus in all of His fullness. But finally, we are convicted plainly of our sin. We give up theologies that say, man's pretty good. One of our fine senators Excuse me, no. House of Representatives members who supports the annihilation of children through the brutal practice of abortion. Uh, Recently, there was a clip that I saw of this individual pontificating that we all have a spark of the divine nature within us. And that has to be, that has to be uh, honored. And, and we have to allow people to flame, uh, fan that divine uh, spark of divinity that's in them into something greater. And I just thought, you are such a dork. Because <laughs> if you believe that, then abortion can't be. But we don't have the spark of divinity in us in the sense that we're good. As we come being filled with the Spirit of God, one thing will be sure to us. We will know with all certainty that we are depraved, sin-sick people. Our first and primary problem is not going to be the IRS, how our children behave, what people think of us. Our primary problem when we are really filled with the Spirit is, woe is me, I am unclean. We'll be convicted that our dependence is upon Christ and Christ alone. We stop trying to build rules and little religious systems around us that please our flesh and make us look good. And we start to realize we're alive to the Spirit and we're not dependent upon religious rules. We're dependent upon the Spirit of Almighty God. We depend on Him not only for the opening of our eyes, not only for our salvation, but for everything that we do in this life for his glory and so we can say being filled with the spirit what Paul said being filled with the spirit in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live 
by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if we're filled with the Spirit, objectively what the Bible teaches is that will work out in our changing appetites, in our being aware of a power at work in us to bring honor and glory to Him and of our, the conviction that we are sinful people. And I want to give you an example and I'll close. Back to Luke chapter 2. And for some of, the, some of you who have been here several years, you know that this is my... I can't get past December 25th without just rejoicing in this narrative. This is a beloved brother. As he comes on the scene, you'll see him. I won't need to point him out to you who is filled with the Spirit of Almighty God. And you'll see all of the differing convicting works in his life and, and how that looks and how it works out. Starting in verse 22, the Bible records this example of an individual filled with the Spirit. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They, Mary and Joseph, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. And to offer the sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Let, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father father and his mother marvel at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Here's this old man. He's lived his entire life waiting on the consolation of Israel, waiting on Jesus. His whole demeanor, his whole lifestyle, his whole point was to, to point to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the day that when he walked into the temple to take part in a ceremony that had taken place so many days for so many children, it had become so normal, it had become just the modern, you know, rote thing to do. And here is Simeon. And he sees and he knows that this child who had no form of majesty that we would look upon him, he knows this is the Messiah. And he picks him up and he says, Behold, now God, you are allowing your servant to depart in peace. And beloved, I just believe this. If we had our brother Simeon come this morning and we, we asked him, Simeon, why is it that you could say so confidently that you are letting God, your servant, to depart in peace? Or how is it that you were such a righteous and a devout man, such an obedient man to God? How is it that you knew which child was Jesus? Because there were probably multiple that came in that day. How did you know that He was for the rising and the fall of many? How is it 
that you had waited for so long for your whole life and all of it really came down to one thing and that was your interaction with Jesus and your joy in Him. What we find in Simeon in the Nunc Dimittis is what John is writing about in all of, of his first letter. The joy and the fellowship of being with God. Simeon waited so long for that joy and finally he comes face to face with Jesus and he says, because He is here, I can depart in peace. And if we were to have him again here this morning and ask him, Brother Simeon, how is it that all of these things could be said of you? Would our brother say, well, I, I was really well studied. I was really smart. Wasn't like those stupid religious Pharisees or those idiotic Sadducees. I was a pretty awesome guy. Would he say, I, I made a decision that I was just going to wait there at the temple? No, what he would say is look at the text. It, it was the Spirit of God through and through. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout. Why was he righteous and devout? Because the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. That he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came. The reason he came into the temple was because the Spirit was residing upon him. Simeon would say, Jay, everything that happened in my life that led me to Jesus, to the joy and fellowship that I had in holding that child, all of it is a reality in my subjective Simeon experience because of one thing. Remind your church of this on Sunday morning. It's all possible because of this one grand reality. God acted. And so it is with each one of us if we are in Christ. The only reason we come in here is because the Spirit of God has been given to us. The only reason why we can be called Christians and be assured of that reality and come and give our time and our treasure and our talent and our praise to Almighty God is not because we would do that in our own strength or by our own might. It is only because God has acted through the working of His Spirit for His glory. Let's pray. Father God, we come into Your presence this morning trembling. We are sinful people, the lot of us. There's not one of us that's smarter when it comes to the things of the Spirit. It is You who gives illumination to the text. It is You who ultimately convict us of sin. It's You who convert our hearts and take away the heart of stone and give us our heart of flesh. It's You who planned the works that You have done all throughout the pages of Scripture to accomplish our redemption. God, it is Your acts alone that are the reason that we can profess faith in You this morning. Father, let us never waver in knowing that our salvation is not rooted in our own being, in our own subjective experience. Let us not be individuals that preach our subjectivity, but let us be individuals who look long into the Word of God and behold the wonderful works that You have done for Your people throughout all time. Father, we thank You that You're still doing those works today, that we have this body of brothers and sisters to love and to be loved by. Father, in the year ahead, might we glorify You in the way that we, we live in light of the objective reality that You have so kindly